0: So I want to talk this morning about something that I don't think I've ever done a talk about before. I'd like to think that every talk that I've ever done was based on it, and I hope every talk that I've done was overflowing with it, but I don't think I've ever done a talk that was just about this before. And that subject is grace. If we look at the dictionary, grace has several meanings, and the the first one is usually the name grace. Grace. Is there anyone here called Grace this morning? Aha, uh-huh. okay, I, can, I see that hand. According to the church database, there are two Graces in the church. So um, if you're watching Grace, um, Grace, then don't worry, we are not going to be talking about you. We also have a family in the church who live in a house called Grace. How cool is that? Let's hope you don't decide to change the name after the talk this morning. Another meaning in the dictionary is the prayer that people sometimes pray before meals. Who usually says grace before meals? Okay, yeah, a few, thank you. Okay, so well that's good, but we're not talking about that this morning. And we're not talking about his grace, the Archbishop of Canterbury either. We're going to look at what the Bible says about grace and more importantly, why it says it what it means by grace, and why grace is so important. Because we need to be people who understand grace, who've received grace, who live in grace, and who give away grace. Grace is so important that I think you could say the definition of a Christian is someone who understands grace, who's received grace, who lives in grace, and who gives away grace, or at least... I think that's what the definition of a Christian should be. Because grace is at the heart of what God is like, so too it should be at the heart of what we are like as his people. Now you may be thinking, well if if grace is so important, why hasn't Steve done a talk about it before? And I was asking myself that earlier in the week and I'll, I'll tell you why I think that is in just a moment. During the week I was reading a book, and it has absolutely the coolest title. It's by Philip Yancey, and it's called What's So Amazing About Grace. And I don't know if you can see, but in the bottom right-hand corner, it says more than one million sold, which, before you ask, is a few more copies than my book has sold. (laughs) But I don't boast about how many mine has sold. I'd like to, obviously, but I don't. Now the reason that I mention this book is it's not because it's where I got the talk from but I do want to steal the title and to quote a few bits and pieces from it here and there. So it's my talk but his title but without that question mark at the end. Now apparently Yancey originally wanted to call the book What's So Amazing About Grace and Why Don't Christians Show More of It? But you can perhaps understand why the publishers were a bit worried about that. After all, they wanted Christians to buy it. So they said, well, why do you want to call it that? And Yancey said, well, it's because as Christians, grace is the greatest thing that we have to offer the world. But it isn't what we're known for. When he was researching for the book he did a survey and he asked people who weren't Christians what they associated with Christianity and apparently none of them said grace. Most of them came up with a list of things that Christians were against. How sad is that? That we are best known for what we're against and not what we're for. That no one he surveyed connected Christianity with grace so going back to that question why haven't I done a talk about it before I think the reason is the same reason that I wasn't too sure whether I should talk about it this week and that is because it's hard and the reason it's hard is because when you really understand what grace is and what grace is all about everything within you wants to qualify it in some way Everything in you wants to add some preconditions and some provisos. Everything in you wants to say, yes, but. Now I'm not going to do that yes, but joke again this week. You know the one about the difference between the sheep and the goats? The one I did last week? Yeah, it, was, it was good, wasn't it? Those, uh, yeah, yeah, Well, if you missed it, do watch the talk because uh, it's worth it for the jokes alone. But what is it about grace that means people like me get worried about talking about it? And that when we do, we feel we need to be qualifying it in some way. And to answer that, we need to look at what grace really is. Grace as the Bible talks about it. Grace as Jesus modelled it. Grace as the early church understood it and experienced it and lived it. A grace that Philip Yancey realised should be the greatest thing that we have to offer people but isn't what we're usually known for. So, biblical grace has several features and it all starts with grace being a characteristic of God. Grace is something that God is like. Something that's an intrinsic part of his nature and character. Now we know that God is love, don't we? And grace is part of how we experience his love. Grace is what we receive from him because of his love. God is love and God is grace. In fact, if it didn't sound a little bit flippant, I would say that grace is God's middle name. So the grace of God is all of the things that I'm about to mention It's not just some of those things, it's all of those things. They come as a package deal. We get all of them. First off, grace is completely free. It's a gift, a free gift. And the thing about a free gift is that we can't earn it or pay for it ourselves. Otherwise, of course, it's not free. We can't qualify for it either because if we qualify for it, it means that we have done something in order to be able to get it. The second thing about grace is that we can't lose it. We can't qualify for it and we can't disqualify ourselves from it. We can't earn the right to receive it and we can't earn the right to keep it. There are no conditions, no small print and no catches. The third thing about grace is that it's unlimited. It's unlimited in time and it's unlimited in amount. It never ends and it never runs out. It's like a river that never runs dry. And the fourth thing about grace is that it's undeserved. Now, if you've just nodded off at this point, 10 minutes or so in, then that is understandable and I forgive you. But please just wake up for one moment because we can all know that in a knowledge sense but still really not know it in a kind of following through on the implication sense. The point about God's grace being undeserved is that it is given to people who don't deserve it. Not just to nice people who only technically don't deserve it Not just to fundamentally decent people who technically don't deserve it. Not just to people who then repent and change and stop doing the things they were doing. God's grace is poured out the same way to everybody, including the not-so-nice people who don't stop and don't change, who keep on doing the things that they were doing. People whose whole attitude and behaviour screams at you that they really, really, really don't deserve it. And yet, God's grace continues to be poured out towards them. Okay, so now you can probably see why teaching about grace is so hard. Why it feels like there need to be some exceptions and some preconditions. And some of those yes buts. But let me say this. We may find it hard, but we absolutely do not have God's permission to dilute his grace, to ration his grace, or to divide people up into two groups. Those who we think are worthy of grace and those who are not worthy. Because as soon as we do that, it's no longer the grace of God. So no wonder that in the book, Philip Yancey talks about the scandal of grace because it is scandalous. He says that grace goes against every intuition that we have. And if you look in the the dictionary, scandalous means shocking, outrageous, appalling, shameful, and even immoral. And these are all negative words, aren't they? And critical words, even judgmental words, directed at people who believe in that kind of grace and who practice that kind of grace, which by implication means being critical and judgmental of God himself, who is the author of that kind of grace. Now in some streams of Christianity one of the worst things you can accuse someone of is being a liberal. But you know when it comes to grace I think that God himself is a liberal. So maybe we better get used to it or at least have a rethink of some of our categories. It's interesting that one of the main principles of the Reformation that is central to Calvinism one of the most conservative expressions of Christianity is that we are saved by what's called sola gracia, which means by grace alone. Now whether conservative Christians always come across as particularly grace-filled is quite another matter, but it's absolutely central to what we believe about our gospel. So what does this free gift of grace include? What's inside the box when we open the present, as it were. When God extends his grace to us, what does that look like? And it's all of these things together. God's grace includes his forgiveness without limitation and without conditions. His welcome to come to him as you are without limitation and without conditions. His kindness towards you without limitation and without conditions. His invitation to be included in his people, to be adopted into his family, to become a child of God yourself, and his belief. Not belief in God. This is belief coming the other way. This is God believing in you. And if you want to see the power of believing in someone, can I suggest you watch Gareth Malone and the choir at Ellsbury Young Offenders Institution, you can catch it on BBC iPlayer, if you want to see just a small glimpse of the power of grace in someone's life. Two episodes to watch later if you haven't seen them already. And none of these things are to do with believing the right things about grace. Karl Barth said, grace must find expression in life, otherwise it's not grace. So believing in it or listening to a talk about it is actually not the point. Grace is there to be received. Grace is there to be experienced. Grace is there to be enjoyed. And grace is there to be passed on. We should be people who receive God's grace, who live in God's grace, and who live out God's grace. Because if that's what God is like, then that's what we should be like too. We should copy him and be like him and be giving away the same kind of grace in the same unlimited measures. Jesus said this in Matthew five, and he's talking here about some of what grace looks like in practice. You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. How ridiculous is all that? It's outrageous. You've heard the law that says love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. but you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. Grace is loving your enemy. Grace is to be given out to evil people as well as good people, to the unjust as well as the just, to those who don't love us as much as those who do. It's ridiculous. It's just not right. It's just not sensible. But if we read the gospel stories afresh with this kind of grace in mind, then suddenly what we find is that we will see grace all over the place, all through those stories and parables and all through Jesus' teaching. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say about grace as well. He was a person who received grace, lived in grace and lived out grace. And you know, every single one of his letters in the New Testament starts with grace. He mentions grace no later than the second sentence in every single one of his letters. And it's quite clear that the way that Paul taught grace caused the same kind of problems in his churches that make us think twice about teaching it that way in our churches. At the end of uh, Romans chapter five, Paul says the more that people sin, the more abundant God's grace is towards them. He says the law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you can easily see why people were drawing this conclusion. So then, shall we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Because if you think about it, that is the logical conclusion. The more that you sin, the more grace you get there was something about the way Paul was teaching what God's grace was like that meant some people were thinking like that. But Paul says, of course not. Or in the King James, God forbid. So, to stop the risk of that happening, it would be sensible and prudent to include some preconditions and some exceptions some yes buts and trust me in talking about this subject today I feel like doing that myself but the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this preaching salvation by grace alone and by faith alone can be dangerous but I would say to all preachers if your preaching hasn't been misunderstood in that way then you better examine your sermons again you better make sure that you really are preaching the salvation that's offered in the New Testament. And it wasn't just Paul who had to deal with this problem of grace being misunderstood. In the book of Jude, the whole book is about that. Verse three, Jude says, Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvellous grace allows us to live immoral lives. So Jude had the same problem as Paul, which suggests that he was teaching grace the same way that Paul was. You see, Paul and Jude and Peter and all the early church leaders were taking a risk. And the risk was that if people really get it, if they get what grace really is, then some will say this. That's great. So now I can sin all I like. I can ignore living righteously. I can pick and choose the bits in the Bible that suit me and the bits that don't suit me. I can be as lazy and self-centred and stingy with my time and my money as I like, and God will just keep on loving me and keep on forgiving me. And in fact, the more I sin, the more grace I'll get. Sounds to me like a win-win scenario. That's the risk that they were running, and that's the risk that we run as well. So the question is, how did they handle it? Well, number one, there is no evidence that they ever stopped teaching grace. Nor did they dilute it or qualify it. And I think the reason that they didn't was for the sake of the people who so desperately needed to know that grace and experience that grace in an undiluted and unconditioned way. They were focused on the many, not on those few. Because they knew that Otherwise, so many of the people who desperately needed that grace would disqualify themselves and would never believe that God's grace could ever be for them. Just like I think there are people here this morning who also naturally disqualify themselves from that kind of grace and find it hard to believe that it could ever be for them if the many were gonna have the chance to really understand grace and have the opportunity for their lives to be transformed by that grace, then those leaders had to take the risk of a few who would misunderstand it and treat it with contempt and treat God with contempt. And as far as I'm concerned, that is still a risk worth taking. The risk that some people may treat it as cheap grace. Because Philip Yancey makes the point that just because grace is free doesn't mean that it's cheap. Just because it's free to us doesn't mean that it came without cost to him. A price was paid by Jesus on the cross. As Yancey says, grace is only free because the giver himself has borne the cost. Grace is never cheap. It's us who are being cheap when we treat it like that. And at the start of Romans 7, I think Paul explains it really well. And Yancey says this imagery helps him to understand why Paul would say, God forbid, to that question. Shall we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Yancey says, would a groom on his wedding day hold the following conversation with his bride? honey, I love you so much, and I'm eager to spend the rest of my life with you. But I need to work out a few details. Now that we're married, how far can I go with other women? Can I sleep with them? Kiss them? You don't mind a few affairs now and then, do you? I know it might hurt you, but just think of all the opportunities you'll have to forgive me after I betray you. Obviously, says Yancey, This guy doesn't know the first thing about love. Similarly, he says, if we approach God with a what-can-I-get-away-with attitude. So let's remind ourselves again what grace is. And as Yancey says in the book, there are no loopholes, no exceptions, no special cases, and no one in danger of missing out. Grace is completely free. It's a gift that we can't earn and we can't qualify for. We can't lose it and we can't disqualify ourselves from it. It's unlimited in time and amount. It never ends and it never runs out. And it's undeserved. It's given to people who don't deserve it. People who really, really, really don't deserve it. Which actually is all of us. This is what grace is like because it's what God is like. And that grace includes his forgiveness, his welcome to come to him as we are, his kindness to us and his invitation to us to be included in his people and adopted into his family. And his belief, a God who believes in you, not because of anything you've done, but just because. All of that without limitation, without qualification and without preconditions. So you may be thinking, if that's what grace really is, then why isn't everyone just saved automatically? Why don't we believe in universalism? And I think the answer to that is that God would never impose eternal life on someone who didn't want it. God would never force anyone to love him and spend eternity with him. If they don't want to now, then they won't want to then. Grace is indeed a free gift, but we have to want it. We need to take the present and open the present. Like any invitation, it has to be taken up and not just be left to lie on the doormat. RSVP, répondez, s'il vous plaît. So let me ask you a, a couple of questions and we'll end with that. Number one is, do you feel that you have received that kind of grace from God in your own life? And if you haven't, then today is the day to start receiving it. Question number two is, are you living in that kind of grace? Are you experiencing it every day? Are you enjoying it every day? Are you listening to voices that multiply grace in your life or that take away grace from your life, Christian voices or otherwise? And my final question is, are we giving grace away? Are we giving away unlimited and unconditional forgiveness, welcome? kindness invitation and belief the way that jesus would the way that jesus does to us are we gracing people are we doing grace are we receiving grace are we living in grace and are we giving grace away and are we doing it outrageously and scandalously to people who really don't deserve it as well? Or are we rationing our grace and limiting it and setting preconditions for it, trying to do God's grace our way instead of his way? And what I think God is challenging all of us with this morning is whether we are willing to turn grace the noun and grace the belief into grace, the verb, doing grace, and being grace. Present, continuous tense. Because the only way that we are going to be a grace-filled church is to be a church that's full of grace-filled people. People who receive grace. People who live in grace. And people who live out grace. So maybe we can pray that we will be people who multiply grace in the lives of everyone we meet, gracing everyone we meet. Philip Yancey wanted to call that book What's So Amazing About Grace and Why Don't Christians Show More of It? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were a church where people say they do here?